1: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent, filling in for Greg Bluestein, who's taking a well-deserved vacation. And I'm joined this week by Shannon McCaffrey, who's a senior editor at the AJC, in charge of our always very busy crime and public safety team. Hi, Shannon. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. So on this podcast, we talk a ton about the legislative and executive branches of government But I figured this week, we could devote a little time to the courts, which definitely for me is the most mysterious branch of government. And I wanted to start with the blockbuster case that was in front of the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Um, And the justices were actually considering three cases that were divided into two hours of oral arguments. And all of it had to do with whether the Civil Rights Act protects people from workplace discrimination based on their sexual orientation and sexual identity. Um, This is an absolute Absolutely blockbuster case, one of the biggest that the Supreme Court will will take up this term. And basically, it's figuring out if the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, which which bars employers from discriminating against employees based on their race, on their color, religion, national origin, um, and most critically here, their sex, whether sex is limited to somebody's biological sex or whether it also includes a person's sexual orientation and their sexual identity. And and just to set this up, we had a transgender woman who was fired from her job at a funeral home in Michigan after telling her boss she was transitioning from male to female. And we also had two men who were fired after disclosing at work that they were gay. And one of those men, Gerald Bostock, is from Georgia. And Shannon, your team has written a lot about this in the months leading up to the oral arguments. So so set this up for us a little bit.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, our stellar legal affairs reporter, Bill Rankin, has been writing about this as it's moved through the court system down here. So um, Gerald Bostock was a um, a man who worked for the Clayton County court system. He ran a volunteer program that appeared to be running very well. It helped with kids in foster care. And um, Things were moving along and and he uh, he was doing well in that job, apparently. And then he joined a a softball league in Atlanta uh, that was a gay softball league. I think it was called Hotlanta, the Hotlanta Softball League. So he claims that after he joined that softball league and sort of really came out in a way, um, he began recruiting um, certain members of those so- from that softball league to um, to support the uh, volunteer program that he was running, that his superiors began to retaliate against him. And um, he says he was ultimately fired um, as a result of that. Now, in fairness, the Clayton County Court system says that, um, or Clayton County rather, says that there were some problems with the management of money, that there was an audit uh, that revealed some problems with the money moving around. He denies any wrongdoing and says this was clearly the result of the um, Of his sexual orientation, and that the problems only emerged after he um, came out as gay. So that sets the stage for that. So it's it's been moving through the court system, um, and we knew it was an interesting case. But then when the Supreme Court granted cert, you know, you suddenly find a local guy uh, at the center of what could be a historic national ruling. So that's always really fascinating for us, and. um, Bill had an interview with Mr. Bostock before the court case, and he talked about the impact this has had on his life. He feels like he had to leave, lose, uh, I'm sorry, leave a job that he, um, or he was fired, I'm sorry, from a job that he really loved. And, uh, and he's had to, you know, move out of his house and all sorts of other personal ramifications for him. And you covered the arguments, uh, Tamara, and tell me what it was like in the courtroom up there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But but before we do that, I want to talk about why we care about this case so much. Of course, there's a local guy, and of course, being the local paper, we want to cover that. Um, but the historical implications of these three cases tied together are, you know, what made. Tuesday is such a big deal you know the Supreme Court over the last 15 years has been marching steadily toward granting LGBTQ people legal equality you know this started back in 2013 when they overturned criminal uh, criminal sodomy law from Texas um, from there in 2013 they required the government to extend all sorts of benefits to gay couples and then of course in 2015 was when we got the the landmark ruling legalizing same-sex marriage so so the real question giving all the changes attitudes in American society was whether the court was going to continue in that direction or under this new solid conservative majority that we've seen since Donald Trump became president, whether that, that kind of stops here. And it was notable because this was the first time the court was taking up a uh, you know a gay rights case without Anthony Kennedy. You know he retired last year. He was the the man who authored all of these landmark rulings granting LGBT people legal equality. And so we were really wondering where Trump's two Supreme Court nominees Neil Gorsuch and and Brett Kavanaugh really fit into all of this. So that's what I was watching as I walked into the room. And what. What did you hear? What, what was, what, uh, Gorsuch was the more interesting of the two, right? Yeah, Kavanaugh didn't really talk too much. He only asked one question. I was seated behind a giant column, so I had to try and decipher people's voices. Um, and looking at the transcripts later, it was really Gorsuch who was asking a lot of the the interesting questions. And you know, both him and Kavanaugh uh, are disciples of, of the late Antonin Scalia, who's who's what we call in the legal world, or what the legal I'm not going to put myself in that category, but the what they call a textualist, somebody who's focused on the literal meaning of the text, what the authors of laws and the constitution, what they were aiming for as they were, you know, enacting these, these rules and these laws. Um, And so on the one hand, he expressed some, some openness to, to what he was hearing. He even told the lawyer, uh, arguing for the, the people who'd been fired, you know, I'm with you on the text. And and he even mused that that how he saw that sex could be a contributing cause in these people getting fired. At the same time, you also heard him worry a lot about any sort of massive social upheaval. And that was the term that he used that could result if, if the court takes a really broad ruling here, almost like a slippery slope that could lead to the end of same-sex bathrooms and gendered dress codes and and that sort of thing. So I think both sides coming out of that were cautiously thinking, "Ooh, Gorsuch could be on our side," but it does seem like something that could be really closely divided. Any prediction? Oh goodness, I am uh, not the I'm not the right person to ask on all of this. Um, but it's it's worth kind of diving into some of the arguments for a second. You had the Trump administration arguing in favor of Clayton County and the employers who who had fired these three individuals, and they said. You know, in 1964, when Congress wrote the Civil Rights Act, when they when they barred discrimination based on sex, they didn't mean sexual orientation. Um, you know, they were saying back then that's when sodomy was still illegal in most states. The American Psychiatric Association labeled homosexuality as a mental illness, um, and and people didn't understand what sexual identity, sexual orientation was, and and their argument, and we heard this from several Georgia members of Congress too, who wrote a brief in favor of Clayton County, that it's up to Congress. To to decide all of these things, Congress legislates. And, and they said if Congress had wanted to change these laws, they could have, and guess what, they haven't so far.
2: It's notable that there are 22 states, I believe, that actually have laws that prohibit sexual discrimination based on sexual orientation. Georgia is not one of them. So um, it, it is interesting to see how this will play out and in terms of how it could impact those other, I think it's 28 states um, that don't have laws on the books.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you saw that the prosecution who, you know, was arguing in, in favor of the, the three folks who had been fired, they were really relying a lot on a 1989 ruling from the Supreme Court that um, that talked about stereotyping. And it, it involved a, a woman who had either been fired or, or passed up for a promotion because she she was a little bit gruff. She didn't wear makeup. She, uh, she had kind of more of a, you know, Gruff presence in person, and and the court argued and and ultimately ruled that um, that it was illegal to discriminate against people based on sexual stereotypes. So what we saw from the the prosecution, you know, they, they were talking about this idea that you're firing somebody based on their their sexual orientation. You're relying on a stereotype that that men should marry women and not other men, and and how basically the court didn't have to take some giant step and and kind of put their butts on the line. You know, this was just a natural extension of all of that. So it'll be interesting to see where they ultimately end up. And we're not expecting a ruling on this until probably next June. So it'll be a while before we hear.
2: They always make you wait a really long time. It's painful. Um, but, you know, the other thing was reading your coverage, I was struck by what S- Sonia Sotomayor said. You know, she's one of the more liberal justices, was really kind of musing about, you know, she, in her in her view, there are definitely instances where individuals have been fired because of their sexual orientation, have been treated differently, and kind of said, you know, when do we weigh in? Um, so I guess we'll find out next summer.
1: Exactly. And I want to pivot a little bit here because the case involving Gerald Bostock and and Clayton County passed through the Federal Court of Appeals based in Atlanta, the 11th district. And this is a, a court your team has written a lot about, Shannon. One of the more already one of the more conservative appeals courts in the country. They ruled in favor of Clayton County in this case. And it's gotten even more so under Trump. Um, and and so far, he's he's been able to confirm three of the 11 justices. We have two more vacancies coming up. So he really is going to be able to remake this bench.
2: Yeah, Bill's been covering this. He's... Uh really interested always in what's happening in the federal courts and what they say about where um, things are going, both, you know, in terms of legal rulings, but also in terms of cultural, you know, uh, trends. And so there have been two justices, both from Florida, who have recently said they're going to seek senior status. So that gives Trump two more appointees uh, to the 11th Circuit. That'll bring it, I think, to five uh, that he will have on that court. Now, this was already believed to be one of the most most conservative circuits in the nation. Um, you know, So having Trump picks more conservative justices to put on that court is really going to solidify it for the foreseeable future. I mean, these are, are lifetime appointments. You know, we're, we're not talking about somebody that will be voted out of office or will be leaving anytime soon. Um, and just to give folks a sense of the kind of cases they, they deal with, I mean, we're talking about you know, the courts that deal with the death penalty, the courts that are going to be dealing with voting rights cases, the courts that are going to be dealing with, you know, workplace discrimination, which is, you know, one we just talked about with um, federal prosecutions, with immigrations. I mean, these are some major important issues that are going to be, cut, going to be coming up through a judiciary, a judiciary that has been shaped by this president
1: exactly and and this is a feeder court to the supreme court in two ways of course you know cases that get appealed out of the 11th go to the supreme court if they decide to to take those cases second of all when the president looks to any president looks to fill supreme court vacancies often they look to these these circuit courts because these are judges who are dealing with very weighty federal matters
2: that's absolutely true. Yeah, we could see some of these um, some of these individuals rising to the Supreme Court bench at some point in the future.
1: Exactly. And it's worth noting that that this uh, this bench has 11 judges, five are from Florida, four are from Georgia, three are from Alabama. And so far, uh, President Trump has been able to fill two from um Two from Georgia and both younger women. We have Britt Grant and, and Elizabeth Branch who who he's filled so far. I believe the two just uh, judges that have stepped down recently or announced they were taking senior status aren't from Georgia though.
2: They're from Florida. Yeah, they're from Florida. So we will not see a Georgian filling that seat because he'll have to pick someone from Florida. Um and Britt Grant was um the was was on the shortlist or the relatively long shortlist that uh, that Trump had when he picked um the last Supreme Court nominees uh, that was on the list that had been provided by the Federalist Society and kind of vetted, so she's in the mix, and she's a younger woman, um, hasn't been on the court that long, but I, I predict if we see another Supreme Court retirement, you know, we could see her name pop up again.
1: Exactly, and this has been one of the more consequential things that that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been kind of quietly doing in the Senate since Trump has been elected. I've spent devoting a lot of floor time to confirming a lot of these conservative nominees, not only for these uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, but also for these district level courts. And we have three of those in in Georgia. And you know, you see Democrats complaining about it all the time. You know, why are we doing just uh, all these judges when we have all these weighty legislative matters like health care? and immigration to deal with. But this has been an enormous undertaking, and it's something, as you mentioned, these are judges that are going to be there for an entire lifetime, and, and especially a lot of these, these folks that are getting plucked out of the Federalist Society are in their 40s, young people who, in theory, could sit on these benches for 30, 40 years. Um, and I'd like to take a moment to turn to the other big story that your team is following right now, Shannon. This is Friday morning as we're recording this podcast, and we're currently awaiting the verdict in the Chip Olson murder trial, which the AJC has been diving into in the latest season of its true crime podcast, uh, Breakdown.
2: The jury is now in their sixth day of deliberations in this case, um, and uh, they said yesterday that they were still fairly deadlocked on some of the more serious charges. The most serious charge is felony murder that could send Um, the former DeKalb police officer to prison for life, he um, shot and killed an unarmed uh, Afghanistan war veteran who was kind of having a mental health breakdown. He'd stripped off all his clothes and was wandering around his apartment complex, and he sort of charged at the officer, ran toward the officer. Um, When he pulled up, the officer fired his gun and shot. It's raised a lot of questions. How could an unarmed naked man be a threat? Um, but the jury really seems deadlocked on this. So
1: Yeah, and this this deals with a lot of hot-button hot issues that the whole nation has been talking about over the last couple of years. You know, police brutality, officer-involved shootings. You know, the, the victim, Anthony Hill, is is not only a veteran, but an African-American. We talk about mental health. So it really kind of covers the gamut here.
2: Yeah, it does. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we chose it for the latest season of Breakdown is that there are so many... Larger issues that this case touches upon, um, you know, uh, you, you've mentioned a bunch of them: police use of force, how difficult it is to prosecute police officers, and and you you think about that, and you think about how long this jury has been out, and it sort of proves that point. Uh, you know that that it is really difficult. I mean, you have a, a racially mixed jury here, uh, five five white members, five black members, two that uh, one is Asian and one is Hispanic. So it's it's a mixed jury. And they seem to be having trouble finding consensus on at least some of those more serious charges. You know, and this also comes after the case in Dallas uh, where the female officer was convicted of killing. The individual inside his own apartment, which was just a really unusual case. So so, it, you know, we, that you, you have that as a backdrop too. she was convicted of murder, but only got 10 years in, you know, behind bars. So it's, it's a complex issue and one that I think we
1: continue to wrestle with. Absolutely. And and one more bit, bit of quick news that I'd be remiss if we didn't mention before we go this week, we found out that Georgia will be hosting the fifth Democratic president, presidential debate. We don't know a ton about it. We know it'll take place on November 20th. We don't know where. We don't know whom, other than it's being hosted by the Washington Post and MSNBC. But it has the whole political world abuzz about the way that Democrats see Georgia going into 2020. You know, of course, the party has always talked about Georgia being. Being on their radar, but they've never really invested a ton in the state. We saw that in 2016 when Hillary Clinton didn't really come here or spend a whole lot of money. Um, there was talk in 2018, and especially after Lucy McBath was able to flip the sixth uh, congressional district out of Republican hands, we saw about a dozen state house sui- seats switch parties. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, any sort of commitment that the state gets coming um, coming into or coming out of these debates.
2: Yeah. Don't you always hear that Atlanta is an ATM for the presidential race, right? So I bet they'll do some fundraising while they're here. (laughs) Absolutely. But it will be fascinating. I mean, it'll be great to see um, all the candidates in Georgia, see where else they go while they're here. I mean, as as a person who lives in Atlanta, I'm excited about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we've seen a lot of folks come in and out for different events. Um, you've seen quite a few go down, take the pilgrimage to Plains to go visit former President Jimmy Carter. But we've I don't know if we've ever seen as many coming in. You know, we're probably going to expect eight or 10 for this particular debate at one time. So it'll be exciting to see. And our, our colleague, Jim Gallaray, wrote a very interesting column about you know, potential locations for this debate and how it could send a, a huge signal if the party decides to to locate it in the Atlanta suburbs, which, of course, last fall was ground zero for this this giant political groundswell, suburban dissatisfaction with President Trump.
2: Yeah, that would be fast. Cobb and Gwinnett, right? So we'll, we'll see if they end up in one of those counties as a signal that they are there to play for the next presidential race.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's it for us. Thank you so much, Shannon McCaffrey, for taking the time to sit down with us. Thanks for having me. And thank all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate
0: us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song,